0: We can use our eyes to read or watch something and learn from it, but in the spiritual world, visual representations made up of spiritual light appear spontaneously before the sight of angels in such a way that the very presentation imbues the angels with wisdom. Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. This week, Curtis and I muse on the spiritual principles at play in the famous Serenity Prayer. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose shares a constellation of passages that give us insight into the incredible visual displays that occur for angels in heaven. Then we travel to 1759, when Emanuel Swedenborg made a deposit of $10,000 copper mint to support his future publications This Week in History. Hey Curtis. Hello Chelsea. Great to have you here for another episode of Inside Off the Left Eye.
1: What are we going to learn today?
0: Yeah well so something that is so interesting about producing this podcast and it's just inherent in making this kind of content is that there's this delay you know we have to produce a show ahead of time and then we release them with who knows how many matter of weeks in between and so you and I right now in real time are recording this conversation and then it's going to be published later on. And so right now I'm like going to lift the curtain a little bit because once people are hearing this content, it will just be what it is. You know, we're talking to ourselves in the future right now. And, wow, and so Right now, in the present moment of when this podcast airs, we are on the eve of a new YouTube show on the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel tomorrow. But right now, where we are, this far out from that date, is we're on the eve of beginning to work on this on this show that is going to be airing tomorrow. <laughs> so, <laughs>
1: uh, I think we've we've dated ourselves somehow in here. People are going to know what you. You were working on that show way back then. Way back then, and you're that old. Okay.
0: So, in a sense, this is a time capsule, and it's sort of a. I realized this can kind of be a sort of fun Wait, experiment.
1: What, yeah. What dimension are we in right now? Exactly.
0: I don't know. The ninth. The usefulness, you know, the ninth use. That's where we are. Um. So this time capsule is: we are going to talk right now about the topic that we have. Our future selves have produced a show on that is airing tomorrow. So, you get what I mean?
1: <laughs> oh, yes. I wonder what, if only we could tap our own wisdom and what we're going to put into that show.
0: We don't have it. So, the show that is airing tomorrow night is on the Serenity Prayer. And. Nice. We're so smart. We're so smart. And so, the, <laughs> it's also like. I hope we are because I hope the show coming out tomorrow is the serenity prayer because there's this whole, you know, planning thing, providence, you know, if Lord willing, this show is coming out tomorrow night. Um, if not, th- we'll just sort of chuckle it. Oh yeah, remember <laughs>
1: we oh, recorded is, that podcast it's, episode. It's perfect because it's either like we said something and we're going to do it or God works in mysterious ways.
0: Yes. And something else happened. And that's actually perfect for the serenity prayer because that's what it's all about because you know, ah. what happens between now and when the show comes out is something we can't change. You know, it's not within our power to control. Yes. We can I just mean, sort we, of do our best.
1: We can change it. Our future selves can change it, but <laughs> not this, not us <laughs> <Yes>. right now. <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh, man. Us and our future selves. How many people are in here right now? It's a crowd. So, so here's the serenity prayer, which I'm sure you are probably familiar with and maybe many people listening are familiar with, but it feels good to say it and I will say it for you all. So it goes, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And it's, it's such a powerful and popular prayer. And of course it's founded or grounded in the 12 step movement and I guess I really don't know. Our future selves will be doing research on this about where this prayer comes from exactly. Like, do we know I, who really wrote it? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I'd, I was going to say, like, was it like James Serenity that first wrote it? Or was it, or was it just like sort of author unknown?
0: <laughs> yeah. and But it it always, it's such a great touchstone because it really kind of covers everything. You know, you've got accepting the things you can't change, but then the courage to change the things you can. So this whole dynamic between our powerlessness and what we can control and then yeah, needing the wisdom to know the difference and where does that wisdom come from, from God. And so that's who we're addressing this prayer to. Um, so I thought, and it's three, yeah, go ahead. Three
1: really distinct things that we're asking the Lord for there. Yes. But you can really break each one off and feel it tangibly. Yeah. You know, the, the, the the courage not just that to know i can but the courage to change the wisdom there's there's just very it's a very tangible ask yes
0: there's the acceptance the courage and the wisdom and we're going to take each of those right now in sequence and just maybe muse a bit on on sort of the spiritual framework what from swedenborg's experiences of the spiritual world how does this prayer kind of why is it that it rings so true, you know, within that spiritual framework? And, you know, we're just sort of musing on that. You know, we haven't. Okay. What what do we know anyway? <laughs> you know, so.
1: Compared to our future selves, co- right? Yeah,
0: our future selves know everything, but they're yeah. so quiet. They just look at us. Um, yeah. So the first part is accept the things we cannot change. So the serenity to accept the things we cannot change. So that's what we're asking for is just that that acceptance and so what what does that bring up for you from sort of the Swedenborg worldview?
1: Yeah, I think it, we're modeling God's behavior in a certain sense. I think of Jesus's famous line, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Mm-hmm. And that Swedenborg talks about permissions in providence, that there are things God wills, God accepts, but then permits. And the things oh, that God yeah. permits are things that God really doesn't want to have happen. There are things that that are painful or unpleasant, but has to for the sake of salvation. So it almost seems like God would have to say, all right, I can't change that. I can't change that. And I just got to accept it.
0: Yes. And that was the same sort of thing that came to my mind was like, uh, the, that whole concept of providence and just trusting, trusting in providence, handing things over, uh, it, like I hadn't thought about it since you until you said it that there's that element with God even <laughs> like accepting maybe God, what God, made God up can't the change. Yeah, because yeah, there's certain things within people's freedom that has to be allowed for that permission, um, which then providence works around. So yeah, for us, I feel like for myself, accepting things I cannot change is, yeah, this element of like, all right, I'm just surrendering it into the lord's will and so a principle from swedenborg about that is that divine providence is not just this abstract airy thing it's this like dynamic active force that is integrated in every single tiniest thing in existence and you know we covered that in our um show about does God control good luck because Swedenborg even goes into how there really isn't anything of chance there's sort of this appearance of chance but that ultimately it's all within this larger container of the eye of the divine taking care of everything for the best possible reason (laughs) yeah
1: that to accept that good will come out of the things that are unchangeable that's the only way you can really accept them is okay I know you're going to bring good out of this in the end
0: yeah, good point. Right. Like, why else would we feel safe enough to even suggest that we would be okay with accepting what we can't change? <laughs> you know, it's that that serenity yeah. comes because you really understand God is really taking care of everything for good, for the highest good in the and It's end. not that
1: voluntary. You can, Okay, accept it. There's something, no, I'm not going to accept that unless, okay, it's going to be all right in the end. That helps me try to accept it.
0: Yes, that like letting go. All right, awesome. And so accepting what we can't change, and then the courage to change the things we can. So what that brings to mind immediately for me is that whole dynamic of this requirement that we need to live as if of ourselves. You know, we have to be engaged. Our participation is this necessary element for the vitality of our spiritual growth. You know, God can't just do things for us. We have to, we kind of have to get the ball rolling even though even our motivation for that ultimately comes from God. But uh, so that courage to change the things we can is this like using our sense of self, this sense of apparently separate selfhood to like, all right, I'm going to do something. It's like when you're trying to make a decision, it's so hard when you're like, I don't know what to do, but," but like, can't somebody just tell me what the right thing to do is? But there's this essential like, no, there's something really powerful about us choosing something. So I, I feel like that comes to mind with that courage.
1: Yeah, totally. And that the it's courage. Hell is trying to make you afraid and there's something primal about you've got to trust in God and God is always saying, don't worry, don't worry. But we have to play this part of not worrying, you know, and yes. going for it. <laughs> yes. Like for some reason, you can't just leave that out because God's not worried about it in the same way. But But for some reason, we are carrying this... Olympic torch for a couple of steps here and we got to carry it.
0: Yeah, and I get. I was even, when you mentioned that, it made me think of like evil spirits so often get us down about feeling like, oh yeah, you can't change anything. You know, like, oh, don't even try. Whatever you do, it's, you know, especially when you're in like a spiral of a bad mood, it's like, there's no way to get out of this. You know, it can feel so hopeless. And yet that courage to change the things we can is really there's so much power in even the littlest step towards... You know what? Like, I will just put this dish away, you know, or rinse my dish and put it in the dishwasher. Like the littlest <laughs> step towards like that realignment with like things are okay can yeah. pick up momentum and clear the that sort of fog that evil spirits, you know, build up in our minds.
1: Yeah. I mean we don't want to set standards too high with the dish thing, but <laughs> yeah, whatever you can do in the moment. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> But no, it's a great it's a great point.
0: Yeah. And I guess I also think of um, you know, the changing the things we can, what Swedenborg writes about the power of that same same thing. This all has to do with our freedom, but that power of self compulsion. Like we when we choose something to do it and do it in freedom, that car- that carries the most spiritual weight for us, you know, in right. either direction. So even the littlest choice of like I'm gonna do something loving toward myself or toward another person, that has enormous ramifications, you know, sort of spiritually speaking. Totally. Yeah. All right. Well then the last part, the wisdom to know the difference. This one's a real stumper, I feel like, sometimes. <laughs>
1: you know? Well you God already knows. Why do we have to have the wisdom to know the difference? when I think about that as applied to personal regeneration or spiritual growth, Swedenborg seems to have a couple of chapters that allude to that where he would say things like, it's not so hard to lead the life of heaven as people think. I think there's a wisdom in not setting standards too high. I mean, I was mm-hmm. just joking about that last one, but yeah. where he, he talks about uh, r- repentance and you just need to examine yourself once or twice a year yeah, and you will see a change. So... I guess probably one of the primary places is in our own course of regeneration, and that Swedenborg will talk about evil spirits stirring up all the evils and falsities that we have, and condemning us for them, and that we have this wisdom to know the difference, which is like, look, of course I have that stuff, but it's it's from hell, and God, only God can get me out of it. I'm I'm, you know, I mean, I have all this evil and falsity, and. And I get it. I'm. I, that's okay. I know God will get me out of it.
0: Awesome. So interesting. Well, so we, uh, this will be fun for us <laughs> to see what our future selves come up with, and you listeners can uh, compare the two starting tomorrow. So you can listen to this episode now, and then tomorrow catch the uh, off the left eye youtube channel show episode that we're going to premiere on the serenity prayer and see yeah how the two compare what what did we say here that we aren't saying then or what have we learned along the way so that'll be fun we can (laughs) compare our future selves can look back on our past selves and you know with with all love and compassion
1: well i mean scholars are going to be pouring over this for for centuries to come (laughs) yes
0: all right well I look forward, Curtis, to catch up with you at the end of the show to see where Swedenborg was and what he was up to this week in history, but first, I'm going to go hang out and grab the scholar closest by, Dr. Jonathan Rose, uh, on the way. Sounds good. Right, it is time for the NCE Spotlight, where we come and share in the light of the discoveries being made in the work of the New Century Edition translation for the theological writings of Emanuel Swedenborg. And here I am with Dr. Jonathan Rose. Hi. Hi. It is great to have you here. And for anyone not familiar, you know, you as the series editor and as a translator on the New Century Edition team, You spend your time just wading through Swedenborg's works uh, in one way or another, every day, hours every day. And that means, yeah, you get just like the closest up perspective that you can because you're thinking about, you know, everything, like all the interstitial matter and not just the, you know, ultimate sentences, but just the core of it. So... It's really interesting to come and hear what jumps out to you in your work. So,
2: It is very fun. And one of the fun aspects of the work is um, reading at different speeds. Like there's a certain mm. speed when you're scrutinizing every sentence. And then there's faster speeds where you're reading more at the rate that Uh, readers might go. Um, Yes. And so I recently had the pleasure of sweeping all the way through Secrets of Heaven, Volume 3, and certain things stood out to me that hadn't stood out to me before, but Mm. I noticed some correlations. There were actually five passages that I noticed, and these aren't terribly long, and they're all basically singing the same tune. Hmm. And what interested me was I'm thinking about the fact that the title of the work as a whole is Secrets of Heaven Contained in Sacred Scripture. It's sort of how heaven views scripture.
0: Wow, yes. And
2: one of the things that he talks about is that—and he struggles to put it into words of earthly language—but that uh, when scripture is being read by people on earth— Angels are shown uh, two different kinds of things, it sounds like. One is something that they can see that is of a heavenly and spiritual nature that he can't put into words. Hmm. And the other is representations of some you kind. Know, so there's something kind of directly spiritual and heavenly. And another thing that's representations... And neither of those can be expressed in earthly language, and if he <laughs> tried, it would only get more and more obscure. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> the harder yes. he worked at it. Um, uh, so, uh, if I may, I'll just go through these. These are fun, and be happy to hear any thoughts that you have about them.
0: Yeah, yeah. What well, makes me think of like a skipping stone? You know, like we're just jumping along and get yeah get a feel. These, for
2: these are interesting. They're ones. they're over the course of uh, you know more than a hundred different passages, I think. Uh, So, in 2551, subsection 2, he says, these, I forget what he was talking about there, but he says, these and countless other concepts are presented to the view of angels in a heavenly and spiritual manner, whatever that means, Mm -hmm. when the word is being read, together with thousands upon thousands of representative pictures ablaze with a living light. (laughs) Whoa. Well that was, that was cool. And that caught my attention. And then just uh, a little bit later in 2574, subsection 3, he says a similar thing. All these ideas the Lord presents to the angels in full light through thousands upon thousands of images and pictures, each of them indescribable. These images are designed for the angel's way of thinking, as I said, and they enjoy the blessings of intelligence and the joy of wisdom while looking at them. Wow. Wow. So there's like a very direct impact on the state of their minds and hearts when they see these. And as I reflected on it, um, Scripture is full of stories and we form kind of mental images— in our minds when we're reading about it. But he's pretty careful to say, no, that's not it. Huh. You know, we may picture this donkey or that bunch of grapes right. or this tree or this person. But uh, no, it, it, it's not that. It It's something he can't even put into earthly language, uh, but keeps talking about these thousands of images. Hmm. Here's another one in 2618. This one's a little longer None of the other secrets hidden in these words, and these are the words he's talking about, he quotes them, Jehovah visited Sarah as he had said, and Jehovah did to Sarah as he had spoken.
1: Hmm.
2: So, none of the other secrets in these words can be verbalized because they're inexpressible. After all, they embrace the state itself of the union between the Lord's divinity and humanity. The Lord uses different kinds of heavenly light to present this union to angels in a visible way, and he illustrates it with indescribable representations. So I'll hit pause again there and just say, you see the two things, you know, in a visible way and then also these representations.
1: Interesting. Not
2: sure what he's talking about, but it's very interesting. And then he goes on about the Lord. He cannot present it to people on earth in this way, though, because it would require the use of objects visible by worldly light And to such objects, it is inaccessible. In fact, to describe it in worldly terms would only make it more obscure. Hmm. Really interesting. Really, really interesting. Yeah. Here's 2629. These secrets are too deep to explain or even to illustrate by means of worldly analogies. They are for the minds of angels to whom they are presented visually in heaven's light in indescribable ways. So there's number four, you know, just again and again emphasizing. uh, And you think about the times that he lived in. We live in a time when we get a lot of visual stimulation. Yes. But back then, you had books; they're just written in black and white. That's it. You may see, see a stage play or or something, but yeah, the, uh, our our world is has much more in the way of kind of visual where you can actually craft a video and make it look like this or that. And uh, they didn't have that. But when he goes up to heaven, it's like wow, the angels are really who would ever think that the Bible turned into this like explosion of of imagery. that you cannot describe in heaven's light. And here's the last one, 2643. It's hard to explain these words to the intellect more clearly. Hmm. I feel you, Swedenborg. He's having a difficult (laughs) time. If the explanation were drawn out further, the meaning would grow still dimmer. (laughs) The subject is divine after all, and it can be presented to angels only through heavenly and spiritual images. If it were presented to people in some lofty style, it would sink down into the kind of ideas that people have, ideas connected with matter and with the physical body.
0: Oh, man.
2: So you kind of can't get there from here.
0: It's so hard. Everything we've been doing on Off the Left Eye is all for naught.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it gets closer than we think. Who knows? I
0: know. Oh, it's really interesting to think about, though. You're sort of trying to leverage everything we've got here, you know, to try to get some sense of that spiritual light coming in or, you know. It's so interesting. And when I
2: was reading slowly, I didn't notice that there was these five passages over the course of this, you know, a couple of chapters of the book. Yes. But it keeps coming back to this visual. They really stood out to me on that quicker read.
0: Yes, that is so interesting. The sort of constellation and and it may like you were mentioning about the tech that Swedenborg had or the lack of tech rather that he had compared to what we have today. Because the first a couple of things that came to my mind, but of course these earthly analogies can't suffice. Is like uh, you know pixels and our ability to manipulate images through pixels. And anyway, I'm just so fascinated that. That imagery and visualization is so alive, or, I mean, he said it's literally living and... Living, right. And is so prevalent in the spiritual world.
2: It makes me, I get this mental image of, um, you know, this light of heaven, which has colors in it that we don't have in this world and all sorts of features, it's a very real light of truth and... And if it shone through, let's say a crystal ball or whatever it might be, and that turned it into all these sort of holographic representations in 3D and moving, and it's amazing to think that all that is in the scriptures. And Sweetmark says in another passage that what angels see is different for each angel; that it's an individualized uh, to their state. Yeah, you know, it's like a personalized picture of things. So, of course, they're like growing in wisdom like crazy. You know, if you mm-hmm. could see something that had thousands of spiritual and heavenly images in it, just one day, and like, wow, yes, I understand more than I did yesterday.
0: Oh, uh, be cool. It's- that's amazing. And I will, like, we so often just quote Secrets of Heaven, but we never use that full title that you said, Secrets of Heaven Contained in Sacred Scripture. But right. this just gives me such an appreciation of that because, you know, Swedenborg just got through Genesis and Exodus, like, clearly the it's so compact. There's so much in there yeah. that he could only do so much. <laughs> and like you said, most of it's even inexpressible. So, A obviously. lot
2: of it is him saying again and again, I, I wish I could tell you, <laughs> but yeah. it's cool. You know, that kind of thing.
0: Uh, it is inspiring, and it ma- gives me a sense of, you know, just humility to just like, wow, it's there's a bigger thing going on out there than than just what meets meets my eye in this world. So that's really cool. Well, thanks so much, Jonathan. And will you join me now, and we'll go meet up with Curtis to see where Swedenborg was this week in history? Oh, I'd love to. All right, let's go. So here we are to close out the episode to go on a little journey to see where Swedenborg was this very week in history. And so... It is August when this podcast airs. And you know what that means, guys, which is a not really a rhetorical question. <laughs> it's it's time to publish and promote the seventeen sixty
1: threes. Yeah. Awesome. I, I just that's when, when I was a kid, that's always what I associated August with.
0: Yeah, August. <laughs> the seventeen sixty threes. So that's what Swedenborg was up to. This Week in History, and it's what we were up to last year in 2020 in our own history. Can you guys believe it? We've been doing this podcast for a year.
2: Amazing. No, we haven't.
0: I know. And so last year in August, we uh, were, you know, the 1763s had just come out, so we were doing lots of promoting of it, and uh, everybody should go get that volume and check it out and read the amazing introduction and but then it was so fun to have this confluence of learning that it was in august in 1763 that swedenborg was really publishing the 1763s like it was the right time of year to be doing that and so we're sort of going in again to that history to another interesting anecdote about what exactly he was doing and it actually lines up with Uh, multiple Augusts (laughs) So, so first we're going to go back to August of 1759 a little bit ahead of the 63's because in 1759 I'll say as well he first well in August he arrives in Stockholm and he was on his coming to Stockholm from London ultimately stopping through Gothenburg like he does and It was in Gothenburg on his way to Stockholm that he had in 1759 his clairvoyant experience of, you know, witnessing with his spiritual eyes, the great Stockholm fire. Uh, So he was in Gothenburg, the fire was happening in Stockholm and he knew about it, you know, and told people about it and then was able to get the uh, serenity that when he learned that the fire wasn't touching his, wasn't reaching his house. Um, And all of his possessions. And we talk about that more in our, in the very first full episode of this podcast, which Mm. the title is After Death Communication and Swedenborg's Publishing Gap. And so he leaves Gothenburg, he goes to Stockholm, and very soon after, when he arrives there, he deposits 10,000 copper mint uh, at a 6% interest to a banking group called Jennings and Findlay in Stockholm. That Well, they had multiple sites, but this 10,000 copper mint was a certain currency in Sweden. And this was a very uh, providential, you could say, investment that he made because... Right afterwards, he, the, I mean, well, I guess, Jonathan, you fill me in because very soon afterwards, Sweden experienced an enormous economic downturn because of the seven years war that was going on.
2: That's right. And it seems like he had originally deposited this money for one year. That's what the note was written up as for one year at a rate of half a percent per month or six percent per year. It did not compound.
0: Oh, good point. So here's the actual text of that of that original investment. It says twelve months after date, the undersigned agree to pay to the assessor, the well born heir Emanuel Swedenborg, or order the sum of ten thousand dalers, I don't know how to pronounce that exactly, in copper, with one half percent interest per month. And it's dated Stockholm, August 17th, 1759. And, but so it's interesting because, yeah, on the back of this note, which is really fun to think about, you know, Swedenborg has this receipt. He then notes that he gets that 600, that 6% interest, $600 um, in 1760 in August 17th, 1760, and then August 19th, 1761, August 22nd, 1762. And then, so he ultimately doesn't take that money back out until 1763. And, and then he has a little note, this sum with interest as due was paid in Amsterdam in 1763. So this investment that carries him from 59 to 63 and so, yeah, Jonathan, why why did he leave it longer than a year?
1: Hey, I just want to say, before we get too far away from it, yeah. that we sort of had the 18th century Swedish credit score there. The well-born Emanuel Swedenborg. Like, <laughs> okay. Like, he's legit. We'll give him this money.
0: <laughs> yes. Well-born sir.
2: Yeah, I don't know too much about all the finances. You know, there's an endless amount to know about. 18th century banking and all that but it's very interesting that he was able to deposit the money in Stockholm and then withdraw it in Amsterdam Right because the bank had branches in Stockholm and and Amsterdam and so rather than carrying cash or something uh, which was very dangerous back then um, uh, he's able to just travel to Amsterdam and know the money's there I've wondered it's I've wondered whether this was money that he had intended to spend on the work that's called Apocalypse Explained or Revelation Explained yeah. that he seemed at first to be all ready to publish and then didn't and mm. stopped. And I don't know if he thought maybe I'm going to get back to it or, or, or something. And I don't know how things worked back then, but it seems to me that he... Put the money away for a year, thinking that okay, next year I'll publish something with those funds. Yes, I'll do Revelation Explained or or something else, and then the Seven Years' War, which had been raging for a while already, um, started in the New World in 1754, I think, and and in Europe in 1756, and but um, was heating up, uh, as you say, inflation of 170 180%, you know, almost mm. triple like your money's only worth a third of what it was before. Um uh and so it's interesting to think about that lump sum that was sitting there and he couldn't even travel. It was dangerous to travel because of the war. Yes. Sweden was on one side of the war, England was on a different side, you know, and so um then when he finally uh when the war is over in the spring of 1763, almost immediately he travels to Amsterdam with these manuscripts and cashes in this note, apparently in August, because the the sum of interest was correct for that month. You know, he probably got it there in about that second or third week in August, cashed yes. it in and immediately got busy publishing. So somehow between August and the end of the year, he managed to knock out the Lord, sacred scripture, life, faith, supplements, and divine love and wisdom, <laughs> mm. which was pretty good. You know, a lot of those are short, but still to knock out, you know, six books in, in, um, in the fall, uh, was, uh, he, he was making up for lost time.
0: Yes. Making up wow. for lost time. And his, business plan had to change, right? Like, I remember, uh, so I think it's in your introduction to the 1763s where you talk about this, Jonathan, and I know we covered it in some earlier podcasts, but that, uh, like you say, instead of spending all 10,000 on a single large work that was the, you know, exegesis of the book of Revelation, which he does later publish in a new form in 66, like three years later, but um, he's completely revamped his His publishing program and is doing these much shorter works and publishing so many of them. So it's just like, uh, it's so interesting to get that little window of him getting this money out, traveling, well, traveling to Amsterdam and getting the money out there with this mind to like, all right, I'm getting this work done, I'm going to publish these books.
2: And I love the way that he just take. okay, this is the cash I have. Well, it's only worth a third of what it was. Okay. Uh, and I think I talked in the podcast before that it really struck me that he does not change the uh, gorgeousness of the publication, the quality. He doesn't lower the yes. quality of the paper or the typeface or, or you know, go to a low-budget Job or printer or something, he he keeps the quality high and shrinks the number of pages a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: and just okay, we'll make them punchier. Um, it it's amazing.
0: Even even with divine love and wisdom, I've often wondered like that book is pretty slim, and yet the subject matter is just so huge. You know, like just he could have totally taken ten times as many pages to talk about what he packs in divine love and wisdom. So it's interesting that he made that choice. Yeah. The
2: the list of what he work, does in the work titled The Lord is very ambitious, you know. Uh he hits a lot of things about the divine and its relationship to the human, how the trinity works, what the holy spirit is and uh what the expression the son of man uh you know, all all these different things, the Athanasian Creed, how you should rewrite it and to make it more true. And (laughs) uh, he hits a lot of things in there in about 60 pages.
0: Wow, that is amazing. So here we are, we have traversed from August of 1759, all the way to August of 1763. And amazing to think of Swedenborg having invested this money and then kept it sitting tight while he gets, you know, pent up about publishing and then he gets the money out and he goes out and travels to Amsterdam and gets a ton of work done in only a matter of one season, you know, fall of that year of 1763. So, super fun to get to drop into this moment in history with both you guys, Jonathan and Curtis.
1: Great fun. Yeah. That was a lot of fun.
0: Hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Subscribe to the podcast to never miss when a new episode comes out. And thank you so much for listening. I'm Chelsea Odener, and I look forward to the next time we're together Inside Off the Left Eye.